and welcome to City Breaks London, episode 5. I'm Marion Jones, linguist, teacher. Guess I'm slowly turning into a podcaster, perhaps? Although my family do rather off-puttingly still call it mum talking to herself. Anyway, we're on episode 5 of London. We've left the eastern side of the city, temporarily at least. St Paul's, the City of London, the Tower, that sort of thing. And we're coming west to Westminster, in fact where we're going to linger for not one but two episodes, because I think both Westminster Abbey and the Palace of Westminster, or the Houses of Parliament, deserve an episode each. So, today then, Westminster Abbey, where you can see over a thousand years of English history. The church in which all the coronations which have taken place in the last thousand years have been conducted, that's every single English monarch barring Edward V, who, as you may know, was never crowned because Uncle Richard usurped his role, made himself king instead, and Edward VIII, who, as you may also know, was never crowned because he chose instead to marry an American divorcee, Mrs Simpson. The British Parliament in the 1930s having said no, certainly not, he could not do both. So he abdicated and the coronation which did take place was that of his younger brother George, who became George VI, father of our present Queen, Elizabeth. So Westminster Abbey really is one of those buildings which has English-British history oozing out of it in all directions. It also serves, I think, as a symbol of the connection between church and state. The Houses of Parliament are just next door. And while people generally say that St Paul's is London's church, I think we'd all agree that Westminster Abbey is the nation's church. And I'm sure you'll see why when I list in a minute some of the very many national celebrations and morning events which have taken place there. So, the plan for the episode then, a little bit of history, focusing particularly on some of the interesting stories of things that have actually happened within those walls, and a rundown of the main things there are to see if you go on a visit, perhaps decide not to take a guided tour, and would just like to look round by yourself. Legend has it that there's been a church on this site, way back into the Dark Ages, But I'm going to start my description in the year 960, because that was when the Bishop of London brought up from Somerset, from Glastonbury, 12 Benedictine monks who were going to settle here in London and for whom he built a monastery. That, I think, is why the building ever since has been called Westminster Abbey, as opposed to anything cathedral. I'm sitting recording this, as it happens, about two miles from the centre of Glastonbury, and I can tell you that, barring the Pop Festival, We don't make the national headlines very often, so to hear that it was 12 monks from just up the road who founded this wonderful abbey made me rather proud. Moving on a little bit to 1042 and to the time of one Edward the Confessor, who was the king who really had the vision to turn this abbey into a splendid new cathedral. Edward, you see, had made a promise to the Pope. He was going off on a pilgrimage to Rome, but as the time drew near, he began to get twitchy about actually going. It was a time of great unrest. He feared that if he left his kingdom, it wouldn't be there, at least not for him, when he got back. So he began to um ah about going. Fortunately for him, the Pope did sort of see his point of view and agreed that he would absolve him of his vow, agree that Edward needn't actually visit Rome, but in return, he should found a church in honour of St Peter in London. And this Edward agreed to do and he decided to build it onto the site of the monastery. It was over 20 years until it was finished. It was consecrated in December of the year 1065. 
Sadly, Edward by this stage was too ill to attend the ceremony, and in fact he died just a few days afterwards. But he was buried just in front of the high altar. That was by no means the end of Edward's reputation. He had been known as a very holy man, and in fact in 1161 he was sainted. If we fast forward nearly two centuries, we come to the reign of Henry III, who really revered Edward the Confessor and decided that he would build a new abbey in his honour and put inside it a shrine for Edward's body. A very new Gothic-style building went up with its lovely slender pointed arches and Edward's remains were duly buried in a shrine just behind the high altar, right in the centre of the new church. I always feel slightly sorry for Henry III having built this beautiful church because historians seem to agree that it was the only one good thing he ever did. Here, for example, is the historian Robert Lacey on the subject. Gazing up at the vaulted arches of Westminster Abbey, one can see that Henry III had fine taste in architecture, but his judgment was poor when it came to just about everything else. So the new church was consecrated in 1269, Edward's body duly moved inside, but work continued right up until the year 1272, when Henry died, and that's when the work stopped. So for the period after that, what there actually was on this site was most of a new Gothic building attached to the Norman nave of Edward's original church, which must have looked slightly odd. In 1503, Henry VII decided to do his bit, and he added one of the parts that people most like to visit today, known as the Lady Chapel. In the reign of his son, Henry VIII, of course, many monasteries and churches suffered a terrible fate, dissolution and all of that, but in fact, Westminster Abbey does seem to have more or less survived. The explanation given in the Abbey's own guidebook is that this was perhaps because it had such close connections with the royals and that Henry, having been crowned there himself and planning for his offspring to be crowned there too, perhaps left it alone. There was a turbulent period, though, because England lurched back and forth between Catholicism and Protestantism under Henry's various offspring, Edward, Mary, Elizabeth. The monks all disappeared at one point, returned at another, and things weren't a great deal better in the following century because of the Civil War, when Puritans, who were opposed to anything very Catholic, smashed altars in many churches, including here, and removed some of the religious imagery. And the other period of history when the Abbey came under threat was during World War II, when it was bomb-damaged, but did survive, and in the 1960s, a major restoration was undertaken. Okay, so that's a very quick romp through the main periods of history, but what's much more important and interesting, I think, is to hear some of the stories of things that have happened in this building over the centuries. As ever, there's far, far more to say than we really have time for, so I've picked out a few particular incidents which I'd like to describe, hopefully in enough detail to give you the chance to really be able to imagine them as you are walking round the building. So let's start by going right back to 1066 for the coronation of William the Conqueror. Newly arrived in England, of course, it was decided that he would be crowned in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day. He and many of his Norman knights were inside, possibly slightly nervous, aware that they were taking over a country and that not Everybody might like that. And suddenly something happened which made them really nervous. Ironically, it was shouts from people outside calling out, Vivat Rex, long live the king. But it was so loud that they assumed that trouble might be brewing. So they all rushed out of the cathedral, 
rampaged round the area, set fire to things, the whole thing descended into chaos. We have an eyewitness report from the time written by a historian known as Orderic Vitalis and let me read some of what he had to say about this. As the fire spread rapidly through the houses, the people who had been rejoicing in the church were thrown into confusion and a crowd of men and women of every rank and status, compelled by this disaster, rushed out of the church. Only the bishops and clergy, along with the monks, stayed, terrified, in front of the altar, and only just managed to complete the consecration rite over the king, who was trembling violently. Nearly everyone else ran towards the raging fire, some to fight bravely against the force of the flames, but more hoping to grab loot for themselves amid such great confusion. The English, believing there was a plot behind something so completely unlooked for, were extremely angry and afterwards held the Normans in suspicion, judging them treacherous. Four centuries or so later, there was a little scene which played out in the Abbey, which you may find sounds familiar, because Shakespeare put it into one of his plays. Henry IV was at prayer in the Abbey when he collapsed, and was carried out into the abbot's quarter next door, where he fell asleep. People were very worried about him, but in fact he woke up a bit later to find his son, Prince Henry, or you might know him as Prince Hal if you've read Shakespeare's Henry IV, Part One or Part Two. Anyway, Henry was just trying on the crown for size. His father, quite aware that perhaps his son had decided he was dead and he would make himself king forthwith, had words to say about this, and in Shakespeare's words, the reply was, Sir, to mine and all men's judgment, you seem dead to the world. So I, as your next heir apparent, I took that as mine own. You might remember from the episode on the Tower that Henry the Fourth himself had, let's say, taken the throne from Richard the Second. He'd always felt a bit guilty about this, and so when his son told him that he had taken his crown, he replied, What right could you have to the crown when I have none? And then there was much drama and pageantry in 1509 for the coronation, double coronation, of Henry VIII and his queen, Catherine of Aragon. This was written up in great detail by a number of scribes, including one Edward Hall, who tells us that Henry was resplendent in crimson velvet, trimmed with ermine and a gold jacket, sparkling with diamonds and rubies and emeralds and pearls. Quite a sight he was. Edward Hall, for example, wrote, The features of his body, his goodly personage, his amiable visage, princely countenance with the noble qualities of his royal estate, to every man known, needs no rehearsal, considering that for lack of cunning I cannot express the gifts of grace and of nature that God has endowed him with. So a reminder that whatever you might think about Henry long term, in his youth he cut a very splendid figure. No expense spared for Catherine either. She arrived at the abbey in a carriage pulled by two white horses, decorated with cloth of gold. She herself was dressed in white satin, all beautifully embroidered, with, as Edward Hall wrote, her hair hanging down her back of very great length, beautiful and goodly to behold, and on her head a coronet set with many rich orient stones. We are told that 1,600 yards of scarlet cloth and over 2,000 yards of red cloth, not entirely sure what the difference is, but anyway, all of that was used for the coronation robes that all the assembled guests were wearing and who gathered solemnly to hear Henry make his oath. He promised, quote, 
with good will and devout soul, that he would keep the privilege of canon law, keep the church's laws, defend it and all the bishops. You read these things and you think about some of the things he did later, and you think, hmm, was he sincere? But his oath finished with the words, I, Henry, King of England, promise and confirm to keep and observe, so help me God, and by these holy evangelists, by me bodily touched upon this holy altar. All of this while he's sitting in the coronation chair. It was a long service, though he was then required to make his way to the high altar. More oaths. He was anointed nine times with holy oil, on the palms of his hands, his chest, his back, each shoulder, elbow, and on his head, each time they made the sign of the cross with the oil. And finally he was given a golden orb and a scepter, and the crown of St. Edward the Confessor was put onto his head. Not quite the end, because after that came Catherine's turn. She too had a golden crown placed upon her head, one with sapphires and pearls set into it, and also was given a golden scepter. It does sound as if absolutely no expense and no effort was spared, so it's rather sad to know that twenty-something years later, Henry's new queen was also being crowned. Catherine hadn't died, she'd been rejected by Henry, so that he could marry his mistress, Anne Boleyn, and she too was crowned with all the pomp and ceremony that could be mustered. Edward Hall, the chronicler again, Anne herself, going under a rich canopy of cloth of gold, dressed in a kirtle of crimson velvet, decorated with ermine, and a robe of purple velvet, decorated with ermine over that, and a rich coronet, with a cap of pearls and stones on her head. She was accompanied by ten ladies, also in scarlet robes, all wearing gold coronets on their heads, and after that, her maids, also in scarlet gowns. She too was anointed and crowned by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Archbishop of York. But, despite all of this, the Pope later declared the marriage null and void and said that any child they had would be illegitimate. Queen Victoria's coronation took place in 1838. She was driven on a roundabout route from Buckingham Palace all through the main streets of London and, as she wrote herself, I reached the Abbey amid deafening cheers at a little after half-past eleven. I first went into a robing room, quite close to the entrance, where I found my eight train-bearers, all dressed alike and beautifully in white satin and silver tissue, with wreaths of silver corneas in front, and a small one of pink roses around the plait behind, and pink roses in the trimmings of the dresses. The service lasted a truly impressive five hours, culminating in a significant moment, which again Queen Victoria herself described. Then followed all the various things, and last of all, the crown being placed on my head, which was, I must own, a most beautiful, impressive moment. All the peers and peeresses put on their coronets at the same instant. She was driven by carriage all the way back to Buckingham Palace, wearing the crown, holding the sceptre and orb, more cheering, as Victoria herself wrote. The enthusiasm, affection and loyalty were really touching, and I shall remember this day as the proudest of my life. Fifty years later, in 1887, there was the Golden Jubilee to be marked, another lavish public spectacle, with a carriage procession through the streets, and when they got to the Abbey, they found that galleries of seats had been put in specially to accommodate the 10,000 guests who'd been invited. Ten years after that, when it came to Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, it was decided to hold the ceremony at St Paul's, 
I think the reason was it had been decided that she was too elderly to walk very far and that the best thing to do was to drive up and round outside St Paul's, stop there and hold the whole thing outside so she could watch from her carriage. There have been plenty of royal weddings too in Westminster Abbey. Two of the early ones were Henry I, who married Matilda of Scotland, and Richard II, marrying Anne of Bohemia. But for the episode today, I wanted to hone in on the 20th century and talk a little bit about the wedding of, as she was then, Princess Elizabeth and Philip Mountbatten, so Queen Elizabeth II and the Duke of Edinburgh, as they are known today. They chose to marry in Westminster Abbey, where the Queen's parents had also married in 1923. There were 2,000 guests, including many foreign members of royalty, the King of Iraq, for example, Princess Juliana and Prince Bernhard from the Netherlands, and many, many more. There were 91 singers, no fewer than three choirs. Princess Elizabeth wore a dress designed by Norman Hartnell, a simply cut fitted bodice and a heart-shaped neckline, and a floor-length panelled skirt, all made of ivory silk and decorated with crystals and 10,000 seed pearls. So it was simple, and yet it wasn't. And perhaps the main thing about the dress was that Princess Elizabeth had had to use ration cards for the fabric. So soon was it after the end of the war. Members of the public had sent theirs in, wanting to help. But in fact, the palace sent them all back, fearing that it would look bad if they used them for that purpose. In 2007, Queen Elizabeth became the first British monarch ever to have celebrated a diamond wedding anniversary. And yes, of course, it was marked among other things, by a service here in Westminster Abbey. It was also in Westminster Abbey that Princess Diana's funeral was held. One of those events surely etched on the memory of anybody who saw it, right from the sombre procession of the cortege from Kensington Palace through the streets of London, a bell tolling every minute, through the music, ranging from hymns like I Vow to Thee My Country, to Elton John singing Candle in the Wind. Both Diana's sisters gave readings. Her brother, Earl Spencer, gave a tribute, which ended memorably with the words, Above all, we give thanks for the life of a woman I am so proud to be able to call my sister. The unique, the complex, the extraordinary and irreplaceable Diana, whose beauty, both internal and external, will never be extinguished from our minds. Not much more than a decade later, Diana's son, Prince William, had his wedding there, marrying Catherine Middleton. I, William Arthur Philip Louis, take thee, Catherine Elizabeth, to my wedded wife. The hymns included Love Divine or Love's Excelling, and Jerusalem, and, of course, the National Anthem. There was Elgar's Pomp and Circumstance March. There were the bells of the Abbey ringing out. A special arrangement comprising, apparently, 5,040 changes, and a million or more people lining the streets to catch a glimpse of the couple. So that's another example of Westminster Abbey right at the heart of the nation's story. There were all kinds of symbols on the day which had their origins in history. And just to mention one, in the bride's bouquet was a little sprig of myrtle with a link right back to Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria had had a sprig of myrtle in her own bouquet and it had been planted afterwards and grown into a tree. And tradition has it that a sprig from that bush will be included in the bouquet of royal brides. Also, as for so many royal brides before her, the bouquet which she had carried was placed at some point later in the day on the grave of the unknown warrior at Westminster Abbey. 
So again and again, history resurfaces in London's most famous buildings. If you go on a visit then, what exactly should you be looking out for? It is one of those places that you could spend days getting to know, so it's quite useful to know what are the main things that I might spot on the map and keep a lookout for on the way round. And I think really they would be the nave and the choir, the shrine of Edward the Confessor, Henry VII's Lady Chapel and Poet's Corner. So to go through those one at a time, if you come in the west door, you'll be in the nave, right by the tomb of the unknown warrior. Come back to that in a minute. Then you can walk through the choir, which is the church within the church, if you like, the place where the monks used to worship. And the place today where, for eight choral services a week, the choir sit. The choir being made up of 12 men and 24 boys from the Westminster Abbey Choir School, which is apparently the only choir school left in the UK. In the middle of the building, you'll find St Edward the Confessor's Chapel, which has Edward's body inside it, just as Henry III had decided it should be. Although it's not true to say that it's been undisturbed ever since then, because, as the guidebook itself explains, quote, During the preparations for the coronation of James II in 1685, one of the workmen put a scaffolding pole through the coffin. A curious choirman, Charles Taylor, investigated and pulled out a cross on a chain. It was given to the king, who gave it to the Pope, but its whereabouts today are unknown. Clustered round King Edward's shrine, you can find the graves of nine more kings and queens and have a look at their effigies. So there's Henry III, there's his son Edward I and Queen Eleanor, there's also Edward III and Queen Philippa, Richard II and his wife Queen Anne, and Henry V and his French wife Catherine de Valois. Lots of stories surrounding all of those, but I'm just going to pick out a couple to retell here. And the first one concerns the tomb of Edward I, which, in 1774, was opened. I'm not sure why, but the Abbey's own guidebook does explain what this revealed. Quote, the king was seen lying in a Purbeck marble coffin, wrapped in a wax linen cloth, his head covered with a cloth of crimson sarsenet, a fine, soft fabric. In his right hand was a sceptre, in his left a rod decorated with green enamel oak leaves and with a dove on top. On his head was a gilt crown. He was measured and found to be six feet two inches, which was very tall for those days, hence his nickname, Edward Longshanks. In the same guidebook is some information on King Richard II. You may remember from the episode on the Tower that he was deposed by his cousin Henry IV and soon disappeared. It's believed he was murdered in Pontefract Castle in Yorkshire. He was buried in Hertfordshire, but 13 years after that, Henry V, so Henry IV's son, perhaps in a fit of guilt, had Richard's body brought to the Abbey so that he could be buried there beside his wife. And there's a rather gruesome story attached to that, also told in the guidebook. Quote, Unfortunately, Richard's body was not allowed to rest in peace. In the 18th century, a hole appeared on the ambulatory side of his tomb, through which visitors could put their hand, and a number of bones went missing, including Richard's jawbone, taken by a Westminster schoolboy. It became a family heirloom until 1906, when it came into the possession of a descendant who was a priest. He decided it was time the king had his jawbone back, and in a simple ceremony, the Dean of Westminster carefully replaced it in the tomb. So, a couple of things to ponder. 
as you walk round. Do try and seek out the Lady Chapel, built by Henry VII, because it is one of the most beautiful corners of the entire abbey. Henry himself and his wife Elizabeth of York are both buried here, and you can see their magnificent effigies, the two of them lying side by side, hands folded in prayer. And just nearby, you can see ornate tombs belonging to Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots, the Scottish cousin who was executed on Elizabeth's orders. It was Mary's son James, who became James I of England and James VI of Scotland, who was keen that his mother should be buried here. And as the historian Robert Lacey puts it, Mary lies here in a splendid tomb alongside Elizabeth, the two cousins, Catholic and Protestant, honoured equally in death. Moving round a little further, you come to a section of the abbey known as Innocent's Corner, because it's where a number of very young royal children had been buried. James I, for example, had two of his daughters buried here, the three-day-old Sophia, that was in 1606, and then the following year, Mary, who was three. Nearby, in the South Ambulatory, which leads on round to Poet's Corner, you can find the tombs of yet more royal children, five belonging to Henry III, who buried his first daughter, Catherine, here when she was five, and sadly had to follow with four more of his children who died, and his son, Edward I, also has four children who were buried here. Also in that corner somewhere is the casket designed by Christopher Wren and set into the wall, which is thought to contain the remains of the princes in the tower, 13-year-old Edward V and his younger brother Richard, Duke of York, who was 11. As I explained in the last episode, they disappeared into the Tower of London and were never seen again. So Edward was never crowned and the next king was Richard III, their uncle. Look out too for Poet's Corner, a tradition which began when Geoffrey Chaucer was buried there in 1400, because when he wasn't writing plays and poetry, he was the clerk of the king's works, he was allowed to be buried in the abbey, and in 1599, so 200 years later, the poet Edmund Spencer asked specifically whether he too could be buried somewhere near Chaucer, and from that moment on it became a bit of a tradition. You will see some other poets' graves and a lot of plaques commemorating poets. All the poets you can think of. There's Tennyson and Browning and T.S. Eliot. There's one to Milton, although when he died in 1684, he was denied a place because he'd been a supporter of Cromwell. He was moved to the Abbey in 1737. People thought a poet that good has to be in Poet's Corner. And another poet that not everybody could agree about was Byron, who died in 1824 but for whom the memorial tablet wasn't set up until 1969. In 1924, so a century after he died, a bishop explained why it was Byron shouldn't be given this honour. A man who outraged the laws of our divine Lord and whose treatment of women violated the Christian principles of purity and honour should not be commemorated in Westminster Abbey. In the end, I'm afraid, appreciation for his poetry overcame the moral objections so he has his place after all. It's also where Charles Dickens is buried. If you find that grave, try and picture the thousands of people who filed past it at his funeral. There's a collective memorial, the very first one in the Abbey, in fact, to 16 World War I poets, including all the very famous ones you'll have heard of, like Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, and also Lawrence Binion, who wrote the words which are used on every Remembrance Day service, both here in the Abbey 
and in churches all over the country, the one with the lines which read, They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Also in that area you find memorials to scientists like Isaac Newton and Charles Darwin, to the explorer David Livingstone, to Winston Churchill, of course. He's not buried here, because he chose to be buried in the Oxfordshire village where he had been born. Fittingly, the composer Henry Purcell was buried here. He had been the Abbey's organist, so talented in fact that when his predecessor heard him play, he resigned, saying that Purcell really must take over. Purcell composed various pieces which were premiered in the Abbey, for example, for the coronations of James II and of William and Mary. Try to make sure that you see the coronation chair, which was made in 1297 on the orders of Edward I, and which almost every king since Henry IV sat in order to be crowned and anointed. Every monarch, that is, except Mary Tudor. She was very Catholic. She was coming to reign after her half-brother Edward, who had been very Protestant, and she simply refused to use the same chair for that very reason. I found it interesting to note, too, that there was one occasion on which the chair was taken elsewhere. It wasn't for a coronation. It was for the installation of one Oliver Cromwell. So he'd taken over from a king, presumably didn't want to be crowned, would have objected, in fact, to that, but was quite happy to sit on the coronation chair to be installed. And again, I suppose to make it just slightly different, this ceremony wasn't carried out in Westminster Abbey, but in the next door, Westminster Hall. And then lastly, one of the most visited places in the entire Abbey is, at the west entrance, the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior. When you see it, you're sure to spot it. It's set into the floor, and it's bordered by rows of red silk poppies. It has been there since just after the First World War. The idea was that a British soldier of no name and no rank should be buried among kings and princes. The nation wanted to find some way of marking its sorrow at the loss of the 700,000 young men who died in the war and the one and a half million more who were wounded. This body was going to represent them all and it was going to be a focus for the mourning and remembrance of all their friends and family. Two years after the war had ended, in 1920, soldiers were sent to the four main battlefields, the Somme and Arras and so on, and one body was dug up from each one. They were all taken to a chapel in Flanders, where an officer chose one at random, which was going to be the one to be transported back to Britain. It was put into a coffin made of oak from Hampton Court Palace, and then taken by warship across the English Channel to Dover. The historian Robert Lacey describes the journey of the train onto which the coffin was loaded through southern England as follows. Silent crowds, many of them mothers, sisters and widows dressed in mourning, were waiting on the platform of every station through which the train would carry the warrior from Dover to the capital. In the London suburbs, wrote one reporter, there were scores of homes with back doors flung wide, light flooding out, and in the garden, figures of men, women and children gazing at the great lighted train rushing past. The day chosen was the 11th of November 1920, because that was the anniversary of the armistice, or the end of the war, and on that day the unknown warrior was born on a gun carriage drawn by six black horses to Westminster Abbey. The last bit of the procession was along Whitehall, where they stopped at the newly built cenotaph, which was unveiled that very day by King George V. Then it was taken on through the abbey, 
where a hundred holders of the Victoria Cross were lined up, and it was eventually laid to rest in earth brought from France, in, as the guidebook puts it, quote, soil on which so many of Britain's troops had given up their lives. Part of the inscription on it reads as follows. Beneath this stone rests the body of a great British warrior, unknown by name or rank, brought from France to lie among the most illustrious of the land, and buried here on Armistice Day, 11th of November, 1920, in the presence of His Majesty, King George V. You may remember that in November 2020, amid all the shutdowns of the Covid pandemic, the Queen made a point of visiting this grave on the 100th anniversary, so the 11th of November 2020. I think the ceremony that had been planned was very much cut down, but the Queen came, dressed all in black, and stood in silent reflection by the grave. Yet another important reminder of the central focus of Westminster Abbey in the life of the nation. And that does seem a fitting place to round off. So just to summarise then, Westminster Abbey is, yes, above all, a working church, somewhere where Holy Communion and Evensong are held at least once every day each, a place where every hour visitors are invited to pause to pray, perhaps to join in, or perhaps to just use it as a moment of reflection. But it's also the nation's church, the place where 39 of our monarchs have been crowned, and a place of burial and commemoration for so many monarchs and important national figures from the past. It is the place then where there's been a thousand years and more of worship and of British history. In the next episode, we're staying very close, just popping next door in fact, to the Palace of Westminster, perhaps more usually known as the Houses of Parliament. So the nation's church and the house of the nation's government side by side in central London. So a good moment for me to thank you very much for listening, to hope that you will join me next week and indeed on into future episodes. There's lots, lots, lots more of London still to come. Thank you very much then and goodbye. <laughs>